0: Tonight, we are going to be studying about Lot. Some of you may have heard of him, some of you may not, but I think everybody knows about Sodom and Gomorrah, and so we'll be getting up to that point in a little while. But we're going to go ahead and read the first five verses of Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13, and then we'll pray and we'll jump right in. We have a ton of verses to go through tonight, so. A lot of it is narrative, just story and getting everything set up and then learning from the story, learning from the things that that Lot did and the things that Lot went through. But Genesis chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, says, Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Heavenly Father, we come before you once again desiring to study your word and to be able to clearly hear your heart spoken to us through it. We pray that you would anoint and fill each one of us afresh and anew with your Holy Spirit, that you would give us your understanding and discernment, that we would be able to rightly divide your word, and and Father, I pray that you would give me your words and your words alone to speak tonight, that we would be touched in our hearts, Father, that, that it would be all about you. And so we commit this time unto you, and we ask and pray all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. So as you read through the book of Genesis, there's a lot that takes place. Um, For those of you that have been with us for a a few years, we actually went through the book of Genesis on Sunday mornings. And one of the running jokes was that when we started Genesis, I wasn't married. And by the time we finished Genesis, I was married and I had three children. So it took us a little while to get through Genesis. But that was in large part because there's so much. There's so much to learn from the things that, that all of these people Went through. And these things, again, as we've shared before, if you can't believe that this is the Word of God, that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and that from Genesis 1 1 all the way through to the end of Revelation, that it isn't entirely true, then then I don't know what else you have to stand on. But that's what we believe, is that, that the entire word of God is true. And so these accounts, these things that took place, we believe that these are historical accounts. These actually happened just as it says. And so the first thing, as we begin to look at the life of Lot, is in Genesis chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, we see that Abram was extremely blessed by God. Abram, later on, is going to be called the friend of God. It is through Abraham, then his son Isaac, then his grandson Jacob, that the the children of Israel are born and that the children of Israel are the apple of God's eye. And that's where all of this starts, that that the Messiah comes through all of this, all the way back to Abram. And so Abram is a, a pretty important historical figure for us as Christians. But it says that Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had. But it also says that Lot went with him and Lot is Abram's nephew. And so he goes with Abram and he goes to the south. And it says in verse 2 that Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. So he had been blessed tremendously already before he'd even gotten to the place where God had called him to go up to. But he was extremely blessed. And so they go and they travel and then you get down to verse 5 and it says that Lot also who went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents. Now it doesn't say that it was to the same extent that Abram had, but it does say that he went went with him, and that he had all of these things. So then in verse six it says, Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren is not the whole land before you. Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. And so Lot and Abram, they had taken this, this extremely difficult journey to get out of where they were they had already been in two different places and now God was calling them out he was calling them to the place that we would now call the promised land which is Israel today and then a large part of the surrounding area outside of the country of Israel as we know it today and so God was calling them out and taking them to this place but now they get close to it and the land is not able to support both families and so Abram wants to preserve fellowship between each other. And so he, he wants to separate and he wants to give Lot first choice. And sometimes as we're going through this, one of the things that, that I really, really enjoy doing as I look at especially the historical accounts of the Old Testament is what can I learn from their lives? What can I learn from the choices that they made and from the things that they did? And so the first thing for us tonight is that sometimes we need to move a little bit apart, even from those close to us, that there are good reasons for that oftentimes. So when Lot and Abram separated, there was opportunity for both of them to flourish. Though it didn't happen in this case, as we're going to see as we continue studying tonight, but that was the the reasoning, was so that they could both flourish and so that they could continue on in fellowship. Because there, there was too much strife between their families, between their, their workers, so they needed to separate. We see the very same thing in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 41, when it says, Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they were doing. And so, Paul and Barnabas, they were a missionary team. They were actually one of the first groups of missionaries. And they went out as a twosome and they went to all of these different places. And so, as they'd finished this missionary journey and gotten back to where they started, then Paul says to Barnabas, let's go back and let's revisit all the places that we already went to to check and see how they're doing, just to to check up on everybody and and to fellowship together. But in verse 37, it says that Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." And so Paul and Barnabas, again, this was one of the first missionary teams. This is a group of of individuals that God had brought together to go out and to do ministry and to do really great things for the kingdom of God and in the name of the Lord. But they have this disagreement, and it's such a strong disagreement that they end up having to go their separate ways. But if you look at the, the ministry that took place in both of these men and through both of these men after they split up, you see that they were able to reach so many more people after they split up. So even though it wasn't necessarily a split on good terms, God used this for the glory of his kingdom. And God uses to, to minister to so many more people. And it kind of comes full circle because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, Paul is writing to Timothy, and this is towards the end of his life. This is one of his, like, you could even call it a swan song letter. This is towards the end. And he says in verse 9, Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. And then notice at the end of verse 11, get Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for ministry. So this is a guy that they had actually split up because of. They had split up because of this guy, Mark, because Paul didn't feel like Mark was doing enough, that he was committed enough, whatever the reason was. And so they split. But now at the end of Paul's life here on the earth, Paul recognizes what God is doing in and through Mark, so much so that he calls for him. He writes to Timothy and says, get Mark and bring him with you because he is useful to me for ministry. And so it's just one more reminder that this was not a split that God couldn't use or that God didn't see coming. And it was something that God did have planned. It was something that God used. Another opportunity for us to see where separating or or coming out of is a good thing, is a wedding. Last weekend I had the privilege to officiate the wedding of one of my friends from the softball team. And he and his new bride, in essence, they separated from their families, in a sense, so that they would be able to be joined together as one. And the Bible talks very clearly about that. All the way back in Genesis 2, 23 and 24, Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And in verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And so in order for that to actually take place, it says that the man shall leave his father and his mother to be separated from them, to be joined to another. And that's the very same picture that we have of being separated from the world so that we can join this relationship that we now have with Jesus Christ. So it's the same picture. And again, separation is not always a bad thing. Although there are times that separation is because of bad things. Because the last example here is in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 33 through 34, where Paul writes, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So what he's telling them here is that there are times that there are negative influences on our Christian walk, on our relationship with Jesus Christ, that we are allowing in our lives. And sometimes that is in the form of people. So he says that evil company corrupts good habits. And I think that we can all attest to that, that there are times in our lives where we are surrounding ourselves with things or people or jobs or, or whatever it is, that we are allowing all of these extra influences in, and this evil company starts to corrupt our good habits. We start losing the, the hunger and the thirst, the desire for righteousness. And that's why he says in verse 34, awake to righteousness. That means that you're you're falling asleep to righteousness because you've allowed the evil company to corrupt those good habits but he says awake to righteousness and do not sin for some do not have the knowledge of god i speak this to your shame again he's talking to the church when he's saying this so we see here that moving away is sometimes necessary and it's not always a bad thing but we get to the end of of that section in genesis getting back to lot and we see that abram gives lot the choice of where to set up shop so that their fellowship would be preserved. And so then in verse 10, it says that Lot lifted his eyes and he saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go toward Zoar. Therefore, Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan and Lot journeyed east and they separated from each other. "...Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord." And so this is a very, very simple application for us, and that is that looks can be deceiving. Looks can be deceiving. Lot had first pick. He could have chosen whatever he wanted, and he looked out, and the first thing that caught his eye was what he chose. We don't know if it was just something that 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 was it, but he saw that and he decided that was it. We don't know if he thought about it for a while. We don't know if he prayed about it, but we know that looks can be deceiving and we know that he made what turns out to be the wrong choice. And again, for us, the practical application is how often do we find ourselves in trouble because we just jumped right into something? Something that looked good, it seemed good, it sounded good, but we just jump right in without really praying or thinking about it. Sometimes it's good things even that we're jumping into. I remember some of the the first things that I ever had the opportunity to be able to do as far as ministry goes, full-time ministry. I remember that people would say, well, hey, you know, do you want to do this? Do you want to pray about it? And I said, well, no, I don't need to pray about it. Like, this is ministry. God has gifted me for ministry. There's an opportunity for ministry. It's just a slam dunk. Of course I'm going to go do that. And it took a little while for me to learn that I needed to pray even for that. It doesn't necessarily mean that you sit there and you pray and you use it as an excuse for, well, brother, I'm still praying well, brother, it's been two years. What are you still praying? Like, is God not speaking? So it's not an excuse to just keep putting things off, but we do need to pray. We need to think about it. We need to count the cost. But again, how many times have we jumped right into something? I can tell you just from personal experiences, I was going through just really quickly. Like it was just, I would type one and then I would type the second one because it was right there and the third one. And and when I got to five, I said, okay, that's enough examples. But But things that I've gotten myself into trouble with because I just jumped right in without thinking or praying about it. Relationships, there were a lot of bad relationships. Jobs, there were some bad choices with those. Business partnerships or business relationships. Roommates, especially my college roommates, those were terrible, terrible choices. Even college majors, there were things that that I did that, that looking back, if I had just stopped even for a moment to think about it, I probably would have been better off if I had just taken the time to not even intensely evaluate but just to look, just to think, just to take a moment that I would not have gotten myself into so much trouble. But we need to be able to think through those things. And we studied before in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17, that we are to understand what the will of the Lord is. He says, therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And that goes for everything. God is concerned about every area and aspect of our lives. Now, one of the things that, that I used to, to, to kind of, not get upset with, but, but I would hear people talk about it. And I would say, that's, that's taking it a little to the extreme. Because, you know, I, I just ask God even for what socks I should wear today. And, and at, at, at first it was like, that's ridiculous. That is absolutely ridiculous. But if God's put it in your heart to ask him for style tips, who better, right? God knows everything. So if that's what it takes for you to look presentable, then do it. Please, for all of our sakes, then do that. Ask God. But God God cares about everything. There's a song from an old CD, it's about a, a singing songbook, and his name is Salty. And my kids absolutely loved listening to it. When I was a kid, that's how old it is. When I was a kid, I was listening to it, and I loved it. But there's this one song where he's talking about how much God cares about us. And the, all these kids are talking about all of these little examples, and the one that always stuck out to me was this kid that's praying and he says, I was looking everywhere for my baseball and I prayed and I asked God and then I opened my eyes and there was my baseball right at my feet. And I thought how simple that faith is and how strong that faith is. And I remember when I was younger hearing one of the the guys that had taught for a youth retreat, he was sharing the story about one of his kids that their VCR didn't work. And for whatever reason, it was on the blink. And so his kid said, well, Dad, why don't we pray for it? And he was like, okay, well, I can't say no, because then I'm going to look hypocritical. So, okay, well, let's pray for the VCR. They prayed for the VCR, and it started working. And he was so embarrassed. He just could not believe that God would care about something so insignificant. And yet that's the God that we serve. That's the God who loves us, that he loves us so much that not only did he give his son, but that he cares about every minute detail in our lives. Every minute detail. And so we're reminded to understand the will of the Lord because God wants to be involved. He wants to be consulted. He's waiting for us to ask him for wisdom, for guidance, for direction. And then he wants to give it to us. He wants to show us what the best choice is. But Lot didn't do that. He didn't do any of those things. So Lot ends up jumping from a winning team, which was Abram, who is literally called the friend of God, to a losing team, as we're going to see, to Sodom and Gomorrah. So you jump over to the next chapter in Genesis chapter 14, and beginning in verse 8, it says The king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sidim against Shadorlamur, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. So life was good for Lot. For so long, life was really good for Lot. He was hanging out with Abram, who's the friend of God. This is even before God has made the covenant with him, and and now he's calling him Abraham but he had dwelt with Abram and he was blessed. Maybe not as much as Abram was, but he was still being blessed. And he chose to leave that side and to go to be influenced by Sodom and Gomorrah. And what ends up happening is that he gets captured by the enemy because he had chosen the wrong side. Now there are times that we take for granted the blessings and the privileges of God. I don't think that I'm the only one that has that issue there are times that we take for granted the blessings and the guidance and the giftings of god and it is in those times that we find ourselves back in captivity to one thing or another that we take for granted what god has done what god is doing we take credit for it we seem to think that we have something to do with it and we lose sight of the guidance of god and we find ourselves being held captive by the enemy I heard a Bible study this morning, and the pastor, his name was Tony Evans, he was talking about idols in our lives, and he laid it out. He did not pull any punches. He said that anything that we allow to keep us from spending time with the Lord has become an idol in our lives. That anything that we allow to keep us from spending time with the Lord has become an idol in our lives. And then he started laying all these things out. Social media, hobbies, sports, jobs, family, friends, all sorts of different things that are not necessarily wrong in and of themselves, but when they supersede God's position in our lives, when they become more of a priority than our relationship with God, then that thing has become an idol in our lives. And why, after having been released from the bondage of all of these idols of Of all of this sin of all of this death why do we so desperately want to leave God and return ourselves into that bondage into that captivity this was where lot was lot was on a winning team lot was being extremely blessed and then he chose the wrong side and that led to so much pain in his life he was captured he was held in captivity And that is us. That is a picture of us. We return to the sin that, as Hebrews says, would so easily ensnare us. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4 says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, this cloud of witnesses, this group of people that we have to look at, both in the Bible and directly in our lives, all of these witnesses, these people that have testimony of all the ways that God has worked, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, all these things that weigh us down, and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, keeping our eyes looking forward, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, Jesus, who endured such hostility, from sinners against himself lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls you have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin lest you become weary and discouraged because it is difficult and it is discouraging isn't it when we fall back into sin when those things that so easily ensnare us do ensnare us once again when we allow the temptation to be something that we fall into. We fall into that trap, we fall into that snare. It is discouraging and we become weary. We feel like we just got out of this and, and now we're right back where we started. The song that we sang tonight from the inside out, a thousand times I've failed. A thousand times I've failed, but still your mercy remains. That is your, your mercy. The things that I deserve to be punished for that you have taken those punishments. doesn't mean there there aren't consequences, because there are, for our sins. But the greatest punishment, the separation from God for all of eternity, that has been taken upon Jesus. And so he says, lest you become weary and discouraged in these faults, in these failings, in this weight, and the sin which so easily ensnares us, to consider Jesus, to consider Jesus, but then you get to Genesis 14, verses 13 through 16, and this is where we start to see the picture of grace. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner. And they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. So it was four kings against five, and they lost. Abram goes out with his trained servants, the people that just had been born in his house, and he goes out and he wins this decisive victory, and he brings everybody back. And again, this is being saved by grace because this was not something that Lot deserved, first of all. And secondly, it wasn't something that he did. Lot didn't MacGyver his way out of captivity. It doesn't tell us that Lot did anything to get out of captivity. He didn't negotiate his own release, and it really had nothing to do with him. And it had everything to do with someone who loved him so much that they came and they saved him. That he had a savior in this instance. And just like that, we have been saved by the one and only divine Savior. And again, it's not because of anything that we deserve, but it's just because of his grace, his undeserved favor. But Lot comes back, and Lot didn't learn from this experience. He went back to Sodom anyway. It's a picture that we see in the children of Israel. You go through the book of Judges, and and it's almost ridiculous that it seems like every chapter it's, and then the children of Israel cried out because they were in bondage to whoever, and the Lord heard their cries, and he raised up a judge who delivered them out of the hand of their oppressors. And then they served the Lord, they loved the Lord, and then they forgot the Lord, and then they were led back into captivity and then they cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up a judge and the Lord saved them and then they loved the Lord and they served the Lord and then they lost sight of the Lord and it just repeats over and over and over again that's why the book is called Judges and not just one judge because it was constant they would do it and they'd get it right they'd come back to the Lord and then they would lose sight of God they'd they'd fall back into captivity they would cry out to God again and just over and over and over again and that picture to me is us that is my life too many times since I came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That too many times I take my eyes off of him for a number of different reasons. If it was the same reason every time, I think it would be so much easier. But it's not. It's d- different every time. I find new ways to be dumb when it comes to my relationship with Jesus. It never ceases to amaze me, my own stupidity. Like I, I just I know better, and I still fall. I still fall I still go back to the same things sometimes and yet we have been saved and we are continually being saved we're continually being changed and transformed and renewed and conformed to Jesus Christ not to the world but Lot didn't learn Lot didn't learn and he ended up back in Sodom So then in Genesis 18, this is where it gets to Sodom and Gomorrah and their destruction. In Genesis 18, verses 16 through 21, then the men rose from there and they looked towards Sodom and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. So Abraham has now had his name changed. He's no longer Abram, He is Abraham. He is the friend of God and he has now had this covenant that God made between God and himself to bless Abraham even more abundantly than he already had. And so the Lord comes and he speaks to Abram along with two angels and it says, the Lord said in verse 17, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the lesson here is that God's ways, although they are higher than ours, they are not unsearchable or unknowable. Again, not because of us and how great we are but because God wants to share his understanding with us. God's ways are higher than ours but it doesn't mean that God won't share with us insights that will help us to understand him better. God has already changed Abram's name to Abraham. He's made this covenant with him and in a sense God has invited Abraham into the know if you will. He's invited him into this this conversation that is way above Abraham's head. Abraham has nothing to add to the conversation, but God has invited Abraham in. Even though Abraham isn't going to be able to change anything. And Abraham obviously doesn't know anything that God doesn't already know. And that is so similar to the relationship that we have with God. Because he wants us to understand his will in our lives and in the world around us. And he's constantly speaking to our hearts, not because we bring anything helpful or beneficial into this partnership or relationship that we have with God, and he already knows that, but he just wants us to know him better. And because he wants us to know him better, he invites us in. He gives us a glimpse. He helps us to understand the things that he's doing here on the earth. But in Genesis 18, verse 22, it says, Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were fifty righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom... 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Now some people might call this bargaining or negotiating, but really what's taking place is begging. Abraham is begging for the lives of the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he starts the begging at 50. And God says, if there are 50 righteous people in the city, then I will spare the place. But Abraham already kind of knew that that was too big of a number, so he goes down. Then Abraham answered in verse 27 and said, Indeed, now I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. I am nothing compared to you, God, but I've taken it upon myself to ask you. Suppose there were five less than the 50 righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for a lack of five? And so he said, If I find there 45, I will not destroy it. But 45 still, that's a big number. So in verse 29, he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose there should be 40 found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. But 40, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, there's a lot of wickedness. So then he said in verse 30, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. And so he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. But that still wasn't enough. In Genesis 18, 31, he said, Indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. And so he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. And then he said in verse 32, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. But once more, suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So Abraham starts at 50, then he knocks it down to 45, and then he gets 40, then he gets 30, then he gets 20. And so he decides, let me just try one more time, if I can find 10. If there are 10 righteous people in this whole city, knowing that he has a nephew there, so he's hopeful that his nephew and His nephew's wife and his nephew's kids, at the very least. And then maybe there would be enough to get to 10. And so he asked for 10, and the Lord says, fine, if there's 10, I will spare the city. And at 10, God was done with the conversation. It says that, he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10, and the Lord went his way. So the Lord was done. There was no more pleading, pleading, no more begging. 10 is it. 10 is the number. You need to find 10 righteous people there. And how often do we do similar things with God? God says, this is what I'm going to do. This is what needs to happen in your life. And we respond with, well, God, how about if we do this instead? Can we just change that a little bit? Can we tweak that plan that you've got? Because that isn't going to work out for me. That's not on my schedule or that's not in in my, my wheelhouse or that's not in my financial status or whatever it is. Lord, can we just work with this a little bit? Because I know that you said this is what you're going to do and this is what you have to do. But this is what I want to do. Can we do this instead? And how often does that ever go well for us? I would suggest to you that that never goes well for us because I can guarantee you it has never gone well for me. And I don't think I'm the only one. It it doesn't go well for us. When God says, this is what I want, this is what I want you to do, we need to be able to say, yes, Lord, not Lord, but yes, Lord, whatever it is that you desire. And it brings to mind the story of a king in Second Kings chapter 20, a king named Hezekiah. In verse 1 of Second Kings chapter 20, it says, In those days Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. I mean, that's plain and simple. Cut and dry. I mean... Honestly, it would kind of be a a nice thing for us, I think, if we knew, if we really got that word from the Lord that, that you are going to die and you need to get your affairs in order. I think in some ways, it's a little bit easier. It's not easy to face death, but it's easier knowing that we have a hope and a future beyond this life. And it would be a little bit easier, I would think, if God came and told us, hey, look, this is the deadline. This is the time frame. And I'm going to take you home. But he, Hezekiah, turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart, and have done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And it happened, in verse 4, before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court, that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people. Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add to your days fifteen years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. So God says, Hezekiah, you're going to die, but you have some time to get everything in order. And Hezekiah says, No, God, they, they're. There has to be something else. I need more time. So he begs for more time, and God relents, and God gives him 15 more years. And when you see the word of the Lord that comes back in verses 5 and 6, it sounds great. I mean, if that was where the story ended, this would be awesome. This would just be something that you could look at and say, wow. What great faith he had, and he was able to pray and ask this, and and he was healed. It says that, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. That's great news. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord. And not only am I going to heal you, but I'm going to give you an extra 15 years. This is great news. And then I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, because that's what was taking place. They were going to be... led into captivity again but he says he's going to deliver them from the hand of the king of Assyria and I will defend the city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David and this is all great news this is wonderful I was here and the word of the Lord came and said I'm going to die the people are going to be taken captive it's awful God please don't let this be God relents God hears his prayer God heals him he gives him 15 more years and he delivers the people But in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 21, at the end of that chapter, it says, so Hezekiah rested with his fathers, and then Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. Okay, 15 more years, then he has a son that that reigns in his place. Not a big deal. You get into verse 1 of the very next chapter, 2 Kings 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal, and he made a wooden image, as Ahab king of Israel had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So he did this inside of the house of God, that he built altars for all the other false gods. And he also, in verse 6, made his son pass through the fire. So he offered his son as a living sacrifice to one of these false gods through the fire. He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, and he consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem which I have chosen, out of all the tribes of Israel I will put my name forever, and I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers, only if they are careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. So he goes in and he even puts this graven image, this carved image that he made himself, he puts it in the house of the Lord, in the place where God had already given them this promise and he had promised David and Solomon and to their descendants that they would not have to wander anymore, that they would not leave this land that God had blessed them with if they would only follow the commandments of the Lord. And he did everything that he could to go against that. Literally everything that he could do, he did wrong. And it says in verse 9, but they paid no attention. The people didn't see it. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And so you might be thinking to yourself, what does that have to do with Hezekiah? Hezekiah asked for, for healing, and he was blessed with 15 more years. What, what is the connection? Well, if you read verse 1, how old was Manasseh when he became king? He was 12. Do some simple math. Hezekiah got 15 more years. 12 years. That means that Manasseh was born three years after God had come and told him, Hezekiah, you're going to die. That means that this king that reigned for 55 years would not have been born had hezekiah gone with the lord when the lord called him i mean that is tremendous to me like what a, a convicting thought and and it's not to say that that we shouldn't pray for healing because i think we should i think we should but if god comes and says i'm not going to heal i want to take you home we need to find rest in that we need to trust in the plan of god and it's not just about death, it's, it's about anything. When God says, this is what I have, this is what I want, we need to say, yes, Lord, help me to want that too, not start pleading and begging and trying to change the terms and, and make God relent from what he has said he needs to do. Hezekiah got 15 more years, and during that time frame, this young man, Manasseh, was born. And Manasseh, everything that Manasseh did, everything that he led this entire nation into was a direct result of Hezekiah not wanting to be obedient to the voice of God. All of it, the 15 extra years, you would think, wow, that's amazing, what a blessing. But it was such a curse in the lives of the children of Israel. In verse 10 of 2nd Kings 21, it says, And the Lord spoke by his servants the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. So I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies, because they have done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. He is just laying it on them. He says that because of everything that Manasseh did and everything that he led my people into, I'm just going to wipe the floor with them. Just going to wipe them out. Moreover, in verse 16, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides his sin by which he had made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. So not only had he done evil in the sight of the Lord and not only during this 55 years were they going to be judged as a nation for all of this stuff, but on top of that, he was such an evil man that as king, he had spilled so much innocent blood of his own countrymen in Judah. That, that's, this is the, the, the legacy of Hezekiah, was his son Manasseh, and all of this stuff that Manasseh did. Now Manasseh made choices, and so did the people of Israel, but the only reason that they were presented with those choices in the first place was because of Hezekiah's decision. Our decisions affect more than just ourselves. Lot's decisions affected more than just himself. And now we get back to Lot in Genesis 19. It says in verse 1, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. Again, these are the two that came with, with the Lord that they came and they spoke to Abraham and as Abraham continued his conversation with the Lord, the two angels went to Sodom. So he bowed himself with his face toward the ground and then in verse 2, he said, "'Hear now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way.' And they said, "'No, but we will spend the night in the open square.' But he insisted strongly, so they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate." So Lot was back in Sodom, even after everything that had happened, even after having been saved by his uncle Abraham, he goes back to Sodom anyway. And if you go back and you read, you notice the the language there, it says that he dwelt in the cities, so there were many cities of the land that he had chosen, even all the way to Sodom, and he dwelt in his tents. But now, if you notice the language here, it says that he's asking them to come to his house. So he started with Abraham. Then he got close to Sodom. Even though these guys were wicked and they were horrible, he started to get close to them. Then he started dwelling near them. Now he has a house in the city, and he's camped out at the gate. Now the gate of the city, that was kind of like the the social hub of every city. That's where everybody would come to do business. That's where they would come to, to make judgments. That's where travelers would come through. So this is where Lot is camped out. He is now a part of this city. He has totally engulfed himself in this city. Now before they lay down in verse before they, they lay down in verse four, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. So these are his friends. These are the people that he has now decided he wants to hang out with. These are the people that he has pitched his tent with. This is who I'm going to hang out with. This is where I'm going to be. This is where I'm going to live. This is where I'm going to raise my kids. This is it. I have found it. And these are the people that are coming and saying, bring these guys out to us that we may know them carnally. Sexually, that's what he's saying. So Lot went out to them in verse 6, through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and he said, please, my brethren. Okay, he's, he says, my brethren. And that was not a, a, a casual term. He's saying, my brethren, my friends, the people that I hang out with, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. So the people of Sodom were just as bad as God had told Abraham that they were. God doesn't make mistakes. God isn't confused. God doesn't have any lapses in judgment. God doesn't have any places that are hidden from him. God knew what was going on in Sodom. He knew exactly what these angels would find when they went into Sodom. He didn't send them in there on a a reconnaissance mission for himself. He sent them in there so that Abraham and Lot would understand the total depravity of these people. It was for them, it wasn't for God. And sometimes God does that in our lives too. He allows us to find out for ourselves just how messed up a situation or a person or a group is because we don't want to take his word for it. God says, this is not what I have for you. Come out from there. And we say, but God, if there are only 50, if maybe 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. And God says, fine. If you're not going to listen to me, go check it out for yourself. And we go and we see And we would have been so much better off if we had just listened to God from the get-go. So much better off if we would just listen to God from the get-go, to take his word for it. But Lot, unfortunately, didn't do that. And Lot, really, in all honesty, wasn't a lot better than most of these brethren that he was around. Because he was willing to sacrifice his virgin daughters. I have two daughters. That thought would never cross my mind to send them out there. But that's how far Lot had fallen from where he had been. That Lot thought that this was the solution, that this is a better idea. I'm going to send out my two virgin daughters. That's better. We should do this instead. That's how messed up Lot's way of thinking had become because he had now been engulfed in the city of wicked people. How unfortunate it is for us when we allow ourselves to be conformed back to the world just like Lot. That we, we've been blessed. We've been taken out of this. We have so much to live for, so much to look forward to, so much that God wants to continue to do in and through us. And we don't recognize that we're falling back into the old ways, the things that we used to do. We don't even recognize it. There was a song that, that came, back, uh, came out a few years back called Slow Fade. And it's because we slowly fade away from doing the things of the Lord. And we slowly fade back into doing the things of the world, even when we're given the warning signs. But in verse 9 of Genesis 19, it says, They said, Stand back. And then they said, This one came in to stay here. Speaking of Lot. These are all of the people that have gathered around. They said, this one came in to stay here and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So now they've turned on him. These are the people that Lot is calling brethren that he's chosen to hang out with, to to live life with. And these are the people that are now turning on him and they're going to do worse to him than what they wanted to do in sexually and physically abusing these two angels who they didn't know were angels, but they wanted to do all these things. And now they're they're saying that they're going to do worse to Lot because Lot was in that horrible, horrible place of being too much like the world to be fully satisfied in the things of God he still had a little bit of a remnant of the things of God so he couldn't be fully satisfied in the world and so the people recognized that there was something different but not enough of a difference for them to be transformed just enough of a difference for them to think well why do you think you're better than us and now we're going to mess you up even worse and that was the testimony of lot that is his life's testimony So they pressed hard against the man Lot, and came near to break down the door. But in verse 10, the men reached out with their hands, the two angels, and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. So Lot is saved by grace again, not because he deserved any of it, but just because of the grace of God. In verse 12, then the men, these angels said to Lot, have you anyone else here? son-in-law your sons your daughters and whomever you have in the city take them out of this place for we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the lord and the lord has sent us to destroy it so lot went out and spoke to his sons in-law who had married his daughters and said get up get out of this place for the lord will destroy this city okay imagine this there are two angels they come and they save you they strike everyone around the house with blindness because they have come and they're going to attack you And you go and you tell the people that are closest to you, the people that you have spent the most time with, that know you better than anybody else, and you go and you tell them, the Lord is going to destroy this place, but we have been given this warning and we get a chance to escape. We get a chance to get out. What would you do? You would think that they would jump and they would run with him. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. So in verse 15, when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of this city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. So he lingered. Okay, so... Lot knows what's going to happen. He just saw the power of these guys the night before. And so now it's dawn and these guys are telling him, you've got to get out of here. And it says that he lingered. He still didn't want to leave. He still didn't get it. He had become so attached to this place, to these people who were ready to physically and sexually abuse him the night before. He was so attached to this place that he lingered but it says that while he lingered, that they took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and his daughter's hands, and the Lord being merciful to him. Now this is something that, that as I was studying, that, that that word popped out to me in a way that it had never popped out before. Because we've talked before about grace and mercy. Grace is undeserved favor. It's something that, that you didn't earn, but you got anyway. It was a blessing that you received that you really didn't, shouldn't have gotten. Mercy is when we don't get the judgment and the punishment that we so rightfully deserve. So it doesn't say because the Lord was gracious unto Lot that he saved him. It says because the Lord was merciful unto Lot. So what does that mean? That means that Lot had fallen so far that he deserved the same judgment that the rest of the city was going to get. That's what that means, that the Lord was merciful to him because he deserved that same judgment. So it came to pass in verse 17 when they had brought them outside that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. So the Lord was merciful to Lot and his family even after all the things that had happened. And Lot still lingered, but the Lord was still merciful, and he brings them out. And so these angels come, and they tell him, look, don't wait around. You have got to get away. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. But Lot has not learned anything. Because in verse 18, Lot says to them, please, no, don't do that. Please know, my lords. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See, now this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. Okay, I know that you're a messenger from the Lord. I know that you're telling me what to do. I know that you've saved me multiple times already, and you've gotten me out of the city. But can we just negotiate these terms a little bit more? Because this isn't going to work for me. And he said to him in verse 21, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow this little city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape therefore for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar, and then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. So Lot still didn't get it, but God still spared him. And for us, again, when God says, go, this is my will, we say, yes, Lord. Whatever it is, yes, Lord. Even if it doesn't make sense to us, we need to learn to say, yes, Lord. And as we're doing it, if you still have questions, that's a good time to ask. But as you're moving, as a parent, one of the things that drives me absolutely nuts is when I tell my kids to do something, and they stop, and they look at me, and they say, why? Just absolutely sends me over the edge. I I don't understand, what do you mean why? Because I told you, because I'm your father, and I'm trying to help you do what's good and what's right. So do what I'm telling you to do. But how often do we act the same way with our Heavenly Father? Imagine what it's like for God. Perfect. You know, sometimes I'm imperfect. I know that. So, you know, there, there is that small chance, however small or great it might be, that something that I'm asking my kids to do might be a bad idea. That is never the case with God. And yet we talk back to god more often than our kids ever talk back to us that's the reality that's what happens that's how we live imagine what that must be like on the part of god to know perfection and to have to sit there and listen to us say but why god that's not what i want to do can we do this instead we need to be able to be willing to be led and guided by God. In verse 26 of Genesis 19, but his wife, Lot's wife, looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land, which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham, and he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Pastors have often threatened, even our own pastor, to put a sign back next to the clock at the back of the room that says, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife, because people sometimes, now we, now we get sneaky about it at least I do. I have one of those watches that when you turn it, the the face lights up. And so you kind of casually, as soon as a pastor looks down to read the next verse. And so I know I've done it before too, but, but it's looking back. It's, it's not being focused upon God. And that's a small example, but how many things in our lives do we look back at? And we want to go back is something that god has already said look i'm going to destroy that because it is wicked and it is awful and it is not what i have for you and it's just weighing you down it's a sin which so easily ensnares you and i want to deliver you and i want to deliver you so much so that i'm going to destroy it and we linger we linger and we say but god do you really have to take that away from me do you really have to do that Lot lingered, and that wasn't good, but when he had finally left, he left. It took a while, but he finally left. But his wife not only lingered, but she looked back, and that had even graver consequences. Lot wasn't saved because of himself. Again, he was mercifully and graciously saved because of Abraham's intercession, just as we are saved by the intercession of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And a passage that you can go through and read that later is Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. But it talks about how Jesus laid down his life for ours, and now he intercedes on our behalf, and that there is nothing in verse 38 of Romans chapter 8, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That there is nothing that can separate us from that love even when we are falling back that God still loves us so much that he wants to destroy those areas so that we can be released from that weight. If we will only stop lingering and get away, if we will move forward. Sometimes we try to ignore the past and and our sins and our failures and, and we want to pretend that they didn't happen. Or sometimes we remember the past and we think that it's better than it really was. The reality is that all of us have done some horrible things that we are sorry and should be embarrassed for. We don't want to relive those glory days of before we came to know the Lord. But we also don't need to pretend that they didn't happen. Instead, we need to learn to move forward. In Genesis 13, Lot saw Sodom and Gomorrah, and they were beautiful places before their destruction. To the eye, they were beautiful. But just like Sodom and Gomorrah, there are some pleasant memories of of times that we had before we came to know the Lord. But that doesn't mean we should want to go back to before the Lord. We appreciate what it was, but we recognize that there is so much more. There's so much better. In Exodus 16, the children of Israel, they, they had been released from bondage. They had come out of all of this, this, this horrible stuff in Egypt and now they get to this place the first leg of the journey and in verse 3 of Exodus 16 the children of Israel said to them oh that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger and that is us Lord it was so much easier before I became a Christian And in some ways, yeah, it was because we weren't engaged in the battle. We've talked about that the last couple of weeks. There were things in our lives that were easier because the enemy wasn't attacking us as hard because we weren't in the fight. So, yeah, it's hard. But that doesn't mean you should want to go back into that captivity and into that bondage. Life was bad before we accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you want to remember something about your life before Jesus, remember that that it was way worse than anything that you have in Jesus. We've been born again, which means the old has passed away, and we're new in Christ. Have you ever heard the phrase, when the devil reminds you of your past, just remind him of his future? Now, I don't want to totally blow that out of the water for you, but we're going to anyway. And it's a cute little pithy phrase, and it's Christianese and all this stuff. When the devil reminds you of your past, just remind him of his future. But let me break that down for you a little bit. Let's say that, that I lost $1,000 because of some poor financial decisions and I, I'm devastated about it. But first of all, I would not want to be reminded of it. I get that. But if you came and you reminded me of it, tell me if this would really help. You came and you said, man, that was such a horrible decision. I'll bet it hurts for you to lose $1,000. And I turned around and said, well, yeah, but the IRS is coming after you for 100000 So, huh. What does that have to do with my life at all? Absolutely nothing. Just because Satan is going to spend all of eternity in judgment, that doesn't make my life better. That does not help me. So when Satan reminds you of your past... Don't even worry about messing with him. Remember your future. Remember what God has accomplished in you already and what he wants to do for you in the future. In Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 7, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, that in our future he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works. As anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is what you need to remind yourself of when the enemy reminds you of your past. Because we all have pasts like Lot. A lot of times we have presents like Lot. Because we fall and we fail. But be reminded of the future and the hope that you have in Jesus. And then the last thing that I want to close with tonight is something that I've shared before. It's from Joshua chapter 4. And we pick it up in verse 4. Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe, and Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you, when your children ask in time to come, saying, What do these stones mean to you? And then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. And these stones shall be for a memorial memorial to the children of Israel forever. Let your life be a testimony to those around you, to your spouse, but especially to those of you that are parents. Let your life be a testimony to your children that they can point to those scars, that they can point to those things and say, what does that mean to you? And that you can explain to them how God worked in that situation and how God worked in your life and how you know that God wants to work in their life. Amen?